You are listening to sermon audio from Fort Myers Community Church. For more information about how to get involved in the life of this church family, please visit www.fmcc.life. Good morning, Fort Myers. Merry Christmas. So my name is Ed. I don't know if you've ever met me, but uh, I've been uh, coming to Fort Myers for the last uh, six months. Um, a transplant from California, and I found freedom here. <laughs> so, uh, today's uh, passage is uh, Exodus. If you have a Bible, turn to Exodus uh, chapter 16, and uh, I'll be reading the whole chapter. Oh, close this way. Oh, wow. That sounds better. <laughs> okay. Um, On the 15th day of the second month after they had left the land of Egypt, the whole congregation of Israel set out for Elim and came to the desert of Sin. And Sin, not the normal word we know as Sin, but Sinai or Mount Sinai, uh, which is between Elim and Sinai. And there in the desert, they all grumbled against Moses and Aaron, excuse me, Aaron. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, they said. There we sat by pots and meat and ate our fill of bread. But he had brought us into this desert to starve this whole assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I rained down bread from heaven for you. Each day the people are to go out and gather enough for that day. In this way I will test whether or not they will follow my instructions. Then on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as greater than on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites, this evening, you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you will see the Lord's glory because he has heard your grumbling against him. For who are we that you should grumble against us? And Moses added, the Lord will give you meat to eat this evening and bread to fill in the morning. For he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, tell the whole congregation of Israel, come before the Lord. He has heard your grumbling. And as Aaron was speaking to the whole congregation of Israel, they looked toward the desert, and there in a cloud of glory of the Lord appeared. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp. In the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew was evaporated, there were thin flakes of desert floors, fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they asked one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. So Moses told them it was bread that the Lord has given them to eat. This is the Lord that has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. You may take an omer. For each person in your tent. So the Israelites did this. 
Some gathered more, some less, and then they measured it by the omer. Um, he who gathered much, no excess. He who gathered little had no shortfall. Each one gathered as much as he needed to eat. Then Moses said to them, No, no one may keep any of until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some people left part of it until the morning, and it became infested with maggots, and then it began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Every morning, each one gathered as much as he needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much food, two omers per person. And all the leaders of the congregation came and reported this to Moses. He told them, this is what the Lord said. Tomorrow is to be a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. And set aside whatever remains and keep it until morning. So they set it aside until morning um, as Moses had commanded. Did not smell or contain maggots. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will find anything on the field. For six days you may gather, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, it will not be, it will not be there. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they did not find anything. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and instructions? Under that, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why the sixth day he will give you bread for two days. On the seventh day, everyone must stay where he is. No one may leave his place. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Keep an omer of manna for the generations to come so that they may see the, the bread that I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land in Egypt. So Moses told Aaron, take a jar and fill it with omer of manna. Then place it before the Lord to preserve for the generations to come. And Aaron placed it in front of the testimony to be preserved, just as the Lord has commanded Moses. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to the land where they could settle. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. Now an omer is a tenth of an ephah. Amen. Amen. Let's hear it for Ed. Thank you, Thanks, Ben. Well, welcome to Port Myers Community Church. My name is Bill Vecchio. I'm one of the elders and pastors here, and I'm so excited to jump into this. This is a, uh, a detailed, articulate story about how God provided for his people, for his children. And so, uh, as everybody was saying, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Um, I don't know who traveled, who didn't. If you traveled, raise your hand. If you traveled? All right, good, good, good. Um, if you just stayed here, raise your hand. I don't know if there's any other options, right? I think you travel or you go. All right, so, um, so I know that in traveling, um, I have four little kids. Uh, they're nine, seven, seven, and three. So traveling is not fun. 
Uh, and so if, what you do as a parent before you get in the car is you say, everybody go potty and then eat something. So you get food and you eat and then you go to the bathroom and then you get your water and then you get in the car. And it amazes me because without a doubt, every single time we do this, five minutes into the trip, what happens? I got to go potty, right? And you're like, we just, you just, what? Like, it's just crazy how... Um, they uh, can just grumble the entire time that you are on the road and you are traveling. Uh, not your kids, I know. I'm sure your kids are perfect, uh, but my kids are not. Um, now, I kind of think about that, and I think of traveling. I think of plans. I think of Christmas coming up. And I just think about the Israelites traveling through the wilderness. Now, there is a debate on how many Israelites actually were traveling through. So whether it was 5,000 or 5 million, I, I mean, I don't even care what the number is, just the fact that there was multiple children in that group. I can't imagine what it would have been like to travel with thousands and thousands of other people and their kids, right? I can tolerate my kids. Other people's kids? Man. Just me? All right. Um, but, right, it's like grumbling and all the complaining, all the, I have to go potty, I have to stop, I need to eat, I need to do this, I need to do that. I'm tired, Right? If we can't go to Disney World without one of my daughters like saying, pick me up. I, want to like, you can't, I can't carry you through every single ride line for an hour and a half. Like, that's what traveling looks like. And I'm, I'm just imagining that this is what the Israelites are experiencing. Yet time and time again, no matter what obstacle they came up against, God did amazing things. And so he brings them out of the land of Egypt. They're in this deep, deep oppression. They're being persecuted. They've been put into slavery by the Egyptians for hundreds of years, and, and now God has freed them, and so they experienced these, they, they, they experienced these plagues, these things that, that God had sent to prove to Pharaoh that he was God and that Pharaoh was not, because at that point, Pharaoh would have believed that he was the boss, and God sent these plagues to prove to Pharaoh that Pharaoh was not the boss. He was not in control, and so he lets the people go, and then they travel, and they get to the Red Sea, and they get to this Red Sea, and their backs are against the wall, and Pharaoh's coming at them with his army. And what happens? God parts the Red Sea. They walk through on dry ground, and he protects the Israelites. And then they start going, and they're thirsty three days into the trip. And so they find some water, but the water is bitter, and they grumble, and they complain. So what does God do? He makes the bitter water sweet. Now we're 45 days into the trip. And what happens? We're hungry. We're hungry, and that's, that's where we're diving into this story. I mean, you would think that by now they would learn that God has their back. You would think that by now God would have proven to them. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but when you read these stories and when you hear these stories, do you ever think, man, I wish I was there because I would have just been the one standing up being like, hey, guys, listen, God did this before. He can do it again. But too often I put myself as the hero in the story and not the grumbler. But often in my life, I become the grumbler. And so I'm looking at this and I'm going, man, you think that they would learn, but they don't. We don't. And then time and time again, a situation arises. Pain, hurt, habit, addiction, whatever it may be. It comes up. We don't learn. We don't learn that we have a God who will provide all of our needs according to the riches of his glory. And that's not prosperity gospel. That's a promise found in Scripture, but yet we forget. And so what we're going to see here in Exodus 16 is this lesson on trust. Do we trust God to provide? So I want to frame this out a little bit because there are 
This story is not an isolated story. This story is part of a larger story. And so the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation is a part of one story. The focus of that entire story is the person of Jesus. And so we come into this story and we're kind of pulling it out, but I want to make sure that we understand these doctrinal truths. There's three truths that we see uh, throughout all of Scripture that frame in this story. The first one is that God knows the plan. God knows the plan. And so, Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Colossians 1, 17, He holds all things together. This is an important theological truth, that God is, the word there is sovereign. Like if that's a Christianese word, right, I want to explain that. It, he is sovereign. That's something we see all throughout Scripture, that He knows the plan. So, this should shape every single person that professes faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, this truth that God is sovereign should shape every aspect of our lives. And so what does this mean, right? Sovereign. So first is that he is all-knowing. If God wasn't all-knowing, past, present, future, wouldn't that freak you out just a little bit? I mean, if we were really honest about it, if you're going to believe in God, if you're going to say, I believe that there is a God, would you want to believe in a God that doesn't know all things? Like, it would freak me out to think that I believe in a God that doesn't know all things. That's why I don't understand why in our culture we're so uh, enamored by self, right? We want to be our own God. I know I don't know everything. Like, I would make a really poor God. But God is God, and he knows all. And so... I don't know why we would want to believe in a God that doesn't know all. And if he is all-knowing, then why would we doubt him? If God is all-knowing, if this truth about him being sovereign, if he is all-knowing is true, why in the world would we doubt him? And then the second part of being sovereign is that he is all-powerful. Now, if God knew everything, but he didn't have the power to do or accomplish anything, we would be in deep trouble. So just knowing everything is not really the, the, the main idea here. Like, he knows all, but he's also all-powerful. That The things that he knows, he can accomplish. So I have four daughters, and I know at some point, they're nine, seven, seven, three, but at some point, they're going to be teenagers. And at some point, one of them is going to bring a boy home. Now, I'm not all-knowing, but I know boys. Right? And so... It's one thing for me to know, but if I'm not all-powerful, then I can't protect them from every single hurt that they're going to experience in their lives as their dad. Can I? Right? Just because I know that a boy is going to hurt them doesn't mean I can protect them from that boy hurting them. I'm not God. God is God, though. He is all-knowing, and he is all-powerful, meaning the things that he knows, he can accomplish. And then the last aspect of sovereignty is that he is everywhere. If God knows all and has the power to accomplish all, but he's not present, that he couldn't provide and protect in all places at all times. He couldn't be with you in your life, in your sphere of influence, and me in my life, in my sphere of influence, if he's not everywhere. But three doctrinal, or the doctrinal truth that we see here is that God knows the plan. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, and everywhere. He is sovereign. And then the second doctrinal truth that I want us to understand here is that God always fulfills his plan. See, God knows the plan, 
But then what Scripture says, what this book says, is that God always completes, fulfills his plan. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Even before this, in the beginning of the book of Exodus, in chapter 3, when he's sending Moses, he says, go and tell the people this in Exodus 3, 7 and 8. I have surely seen the affliction of my people. How does he see it? Because he's everywhere. I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. He feels what we feel. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of this land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. How would this promise mean anything if he's not all-knowing, all-powerful, and anywhere? We know the end of this story, right? The end of the story is that throughout their grumbling and throughout the years and wandering in the wilderness, he does bring them to the land that he had promised. But it was a long journey there, and it wasn't meant to take that long. Their disobedience over and over and over again is what caused them to wander for so long. And so what we see here is that God knows the plan, that God always fulfills his plan. When he makes a promise, he fulfills it. And then the third doctrinal truth that we see is that God's plan includes his people. That from the beginning of time, God created man in his image. And he has formed a people for himself. And he includes his people in his plan. Not because we deserve it, but because he knows that it's what's best for us, for our good and his glory. Jeremiah 32, 38. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. So for all of history, God has always directed and protected and provided for his chosen people. We see that historically throughout this entire book. If you've ever stopped and read this from cover to cover, you will see over and over again the faithfulness of the Lord, that he has always protected and provided for his children. And these truths, they should shape every single aspect of our lives, but we forget this. One, we don't read it. You can't remember something you never read. And then two, when we, when we read it and we know it and we see it, we forget it. We forget the promises that are found in here. Every problem, every hurt, every pain, it should change how we view everything in life. Now that this new Transformer variant's coming out, right, Omnitron, whatever his name is, and the new uh, booster that's going to come out, Optimus Prime, not to be confused with Amazon Prime, which you're all shopping on for Christmas. If you don't know, there is a new variant that's coming out. Omnicron, sorry. Let's just call it Omnitron, right? Transformer coming down from the sky. Going to get us. One of a million. If we forget that God is sovereign, if we forget that God has a plan, if we forget that God always fulfills his plan, if we forget that his plan includes us, then we're going to be helpless and hopeless. That's why our world doesn't believe. That's why our world doesn't have hope. That's why our world is broken. Because we place our faith in Optimus Prime Booster as opposed to the Savior of all things. We place our faith in building our own kingdoms and all the stuff that we can acquire versus just trusting for the Lord to be our provider. This is huge. 
And so for me and you, as we look in Exodus 16, there are, there are four observations that I want to pull out of here. I'm not going to be able to cover it all. It is a long chapter. Ed, you did a great job reading it. I really appreciate you doing that. There's four truths that I want to pull out of here because I think that we can relate to this in one way, shape, or form. I think the first thing that we see in Exodus 16 is in verse 2. That grumbling, kids, if you're in here, listen, grumbling is contagious. Look at verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. You know, negativity spreads faster than a virus. I mean, grumbling starts usually with just one. I mean, this is why churches split, right? Notice that's a little warmer in here today. Because people are like, it's so cold, it's so cold, it's so cold. So we have to turn the AC up, right? I'm like, how many of us? And so it's, but that's what, what, what grumbling can start, right? So, so this is what happens. And I'm, I'm going to use Chris as an example because Chris is probably, he's on our worship team. He's one of the most positive people I know. So anytime I'm talking to Chris, he's, I'm like, hey, man, how are you doing? He's like, it's great. He's having the worst day of his life. It's great, man. Everything's good. Um, but this is what happens is, is that when all of a sudden something in his life is not going well or something is, is messed up or he thinks something is broken, then, then the grumbling starts. And then it spreads to his wife and then his wife's friends, and then their husbands, and then their kids. And, their, and all of a sudden, this thing just snowballs, right? This is what happens in churches, right? Oh, you know, we've just been going, and we haven't been feeling it. It hasn't been good, right? Or, or the music hasn't been as good as it used to be. Or, or you know, the, the building's getting old, or this is happening, or, or this happened, or, or we changed. And, and all of a sudden, this grumbling starts to happen, and it spreads like wildfire. Grumbling is contagious, and we don't realize that our words actually matter. Now, it's good for my wife and I to sit down and to process feelings and emotions. That's actually a good thing, men. That's actually a good thing, to sit down and process what you're feeling. Well, not me. No, you. Like, that's a good thing. But when it becomes grumbling, when it becomes this very negative, like, man, that will spread like a wildfire. It will hinder your spouses, your kids, your neighbors, your coworkers, when you begin to focus on the negative, when you begin to grumble about all things, and that's what we're seeing here, right? They're traveling. I mean, they're just, they're just walking, right? Now all of a sudden, what, oh, it's hot. Oh, it's so hot. Oh, man, like, if only, right? What do we see here? The whole congregation, congregation grumbles, and the people of Israel said to them, oh, would we that have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt? when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the fill. All right, hold on a second. They were in captivity. They were slaves that were said to work 18-hour days. You know what we do when we grumble? We tend to accentuate and exaggerate. Exaggerate, right? So we look back and we're like, oh, it was so good back then. It was so good when they did this, right? When it was just bent on the acoustic in a living room, it was so good, Right? And then all of a sudden, we look at the things that we have, and then we just grumble, and we grumble, and we grumble. But remember when? Right? They didn't have a great in Israel. But they began to exaggerate and exacerbate what was going on back then. Right? Oh, was, we, we should have just died over there. We at least had meat pots and ate bread to the full. You brought us into the wilderness to kill us. Is that why God brought them out into the wilderness? No, he brought them out in the wilderness to bring them to the promised land a land where we no longer be captive, where they would be free. But all they can see is the negative in front of them. 
and look back and accentuate the only little good glimmers of hope that they experienced when they were in captivity. Grumbling is contagious. And then here's the second thing we see here. In verse 3, humans don't know the plan. They don't know the plan. Because what, they're, what, what we do and what we tend to do is very similar to these Israelites is that, is that they grumble and complain because they don't know the actual outcome of what we're going through. Listen, if you haven't heard this before, let me share it with you. You will experience some sort of pain in this life. Merry Christmas. Have a great holiday. If you haven't just come out of a huge trial, you're probably about to head into one. That's life. But what we have to understand is that we don't know the plan. We don't know it. We can try to know it. I mean, if you think about it, like in our culture, we've actually built this economy off of an understanding that we don't actually know the plan. Even though we try to pretend like we do, like we go, we, like people talk about, oh, three years from now, this is what this is going to look like. And, and we start, you know, projecting and saying, oh, if we do this, if we do this, if we do this. But we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if aliens are going to land tomorrow. I mean, right? Omnitron's coming. So we don't know what tomorrow may bring. But we try to project. We try to figure it out. We try to put the numbers together and logic our way through this life. But we don't. And so we have amazing people that God has given wisdom, like like Steve, right, he's a financial advisor, and he, he helps us understand what it looks like to prepare for retirement. But I don't know if I'm going to live old enough to retire. We have people that, that sell life insurance. That's a good thing. But I don't know if I, when I'm going to die or how I'm going to die or what that's going to look like. Like health insurance, house insurance, car insurance. If you knew that you were never going to get into a car accident for the rest of your life, would you pay for the car insurance? No. Because we don't know the plan. We protect ourselves with insurance, with things that help us navigate the uncertain waters of this life. And I'm not saying that that's bad. That's what we do. Like, we're, we're trying to protect our kids, our wives, our spouses, our homes, those things. But what I'm saying is, is we have built an economy based off the fact that we actually don't know. We don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if we're going to have another collapse. Like, all of a sudden, Friday comes, and, you know, last Friday, right after Thanksgiving, and the market, you know, tanks, what, 900 points? We don't know when that's going to happen. It could tank 1,800 on Monday. It could, it could explode. I don't know, but here's the deal. We don't know the plan, and we have to stop acting like we do, and that's what the Israelites are doing. The Israelites are, are saying we, it, was, it would be better for us if that happened, God. God, let me tell you the better plan. Ever play that card? God, I know this is happening now, but let me tell you what would be better. If you just let me get this promotion, God, let me tell you how this is going to benefit you and me. God, if you just let me marry this person, I, I know they're not good, I know that, that, that they're, they're negative and that they're abusive, but God, if you just let me marry them, then this is the benefit. So we try to convince him of these things. But here's the deal, we don't know the plan. So grumbling is contagious, humans don't know the plan, and here's another thing that we see here in verse 4. Tests will happen. Tests will happen. Look at verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, 
whether they will walk in my law or not. Now, I want to bring some clarity to this because we see in verse 19, he explains that they are only to take what they're supposed to eat for a day. And then on Saturday, they're supposed to take double portion so they could have it for Sunday so they could take a Sabbath. But this is what we see. God allows our faith to be tested. He allows our faith to be tested. Now, here's the clarity. He does not tempt us, James 1. Temptation and testing are two different things. One draws us closer to God. The other pulls us away from God. So God does not tempt us. Here's another truth that we see in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He always provides a way out. He always provides a way to victory. But what we see in James 1, 2 through 3 is that it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith will produce steadfastness. And let the steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I love the visual that we see in Scripture of uh, a goldsmith refining a piece of gold. Do you know what gold looks like coming out of a fire? Or, or, I'm sorry, what gold looks like coming out of the ground? Almost looks like a lump of coal. It is black, it's dark, you, know, you don't really, it's just dirty. And what does a refiner do? They will take that lump of coal and they will put it into a fire. And what that fire does is it draws the imperfections out of that gold. And then when the refiner does is he takes it out of the fire and then he scrapes off all the junk, all the black, all the nastiness, and then he puts it back into the fire. And it draws more imperfections out of the gold. And then he pulls it out and he scrapes away all the yuckiness, all the bad stuff. And then he puts it back into the fire. And you know how long he does that? Until he can see his reflection in the gold. What testing does for us is it draws out the sin and the imperfections that we have so that God can begin to scrape those away from our lives. And guess what? It's not fun. But if I were to ask you, would you want to be refined? Would you want to be a pure piece of gold? Would you want to be complete, lacking nothing? You can't get there without there being tests and trials and tribulation. And so what we see is that grumbling is contagious. Humans don't know the plan. And that test will happen. That's something that we see here. We will be tested. And here's another thing that we see. Because I think when we hear that tests will happen, we think that God is out to get us. God is not out to get us. He is out to build us up and perfect us. So while he is stirring things in us, we have to understand what we see at the end of this story is that we will fail. Do you know that that's kind of our MO? We are going to fail these tests. And we have a God that is good and gracious and loves us in the midst of our failures. In the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our pain, we have a God that walks with us in those failures. He does not expect you and I to be perfect. He knows that is a work that he is going to complete because he is the one that is going to do it. So we will fail. Look at verse 20 and, and 27. Some took too much, and so they tried to keep it overnight because they, they didn't know if God was going to provide enough, right? So you walk out, think, think about it. you're in the wilderness, you're hungry, and all of a sudden this bread just appears on the ground right? So you've got these like Hawaiian rolls just sitting all over the place. You go out, you pick them up, and then you're thinking, 
man, this is really good, and I don't know if there's going to be some tomorrow. So I'm just going to stick a couple away, right? Put a couple in your pockets, right? Just in case that God doesn't show up tomorrow. And then what happens? Turns There's maggots, and it smells. Because God said, I will provide. He says in his word, Jesus, when he's walking the earth, he says, I care for the sparrows. I care for the grass in the field. How much more so will I care and provide for you? But we fail to believe it. And they fail. So they try to store up, even though God said don't store up, and it turns into maggots and gross stuff, smelly stuff in their house. And then what? Right? On the day where he says gather double. Some are like, oh, there'll just be more tomorrow. I don't want to do that work now. Like I'll, just, I'll just go back out in the morning and grab some. What happens? No, no, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. I told you to gather twice as much. So they're just not listening to God. How often in our lives do we play the I'm a Christian card, but we don't actually follow Christ? We play the card where, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a believer. I follow Jesus. And then a situation arises where we are to do what God's called us to do, and we don't do it. We have announcements, the same three announcements every week, live, give, serve. Those are things that we see in Scripture, that if you are to be a part of a local church body, that you are to participate. But we don't do it. We don't participate because we think that we're the exception, always. I'm just going to speak to myself. I always think I'm the exception to the rule. Here's the deal. We will fail. But I love the truths that we see all throughout the Scripture because even when we are faithless, God always remains faithful. See, the end of the story, what we know is that God comes through. Every time, God is faithful. He provides for his people. So for 40 years, God just brings them food. It appears. He's providing for them, leading them to a place where they will experience peace and freedom and that they will experience more of him. Now, I want to be careful on what provision looks like because this is not health, wealth, and happiness. We have so many people in our culture today that are getting on Instagram and Facebook and, and TV saying that Christianity looks like us having everything that we ever want and desire. That's not what we see in Scripture. What is God going to provide? He is going to provide the faith that we need, and he is going to bear the fruit that he wants in our lives. Faith and fruit. Faith and fruit. That's what provision looks like, that God will continually, over and over again, develop and build in us faith and fruit through the work of his spirit. And when he does that, when he, when he gives us the faith and the fruit that we need, what is the result? Verses 33 and 34, worship. What does Moses and Aaron say? We, we, we have to gather an omer, right? I, now, if in one night the, the bread like, got worms and started stinking, like, what do they do? They go and they get an omer of this stuff, and they pack it away, and they store it in what, an airtight container back then. I don't know. I don't think they had Tupperware, right? But they, they store it, and they put it somewhere so that for generations and generations, they can remember. The Bible, you know what that calls stuff like that, right? We, we use the word testimony. It's actually called an Ebenezer, where, where God allows us to set up these, these um, pillars uh, what they were in Scripture were these rocks that they would set up. To, when they looked at them, it reminded them of the faithfulness of the Lord. And we have those in our lives. Moments, testimonies of God's faithfulness to us over and over again and how he has been faithful even when we were faithless. And that's what this, this little container was. 
to remind them that God provided for them for 40 years while they were wandering the wilderness. That's worship. It is worship when we go around the Thanksgiving table and we thank the Lord for the things that he has provided for us. It is worship when we celebrate what the Lord is doing when we're in community group. When we talk to our friends and we get together and we say, hey man, this is what God's doing in my life. This is what God's doing in my life. And we celebrate the, you know what the opposite of grumbling is? Celebrating and worshiping Jesus. So would we as a people spend more time worshiping and celebrating the faithfulness of the Lord versus grumbling and complaining of the things that we think we should have but we don't? Man, when I look at these stories and I look at the people traveling through the wilderness, I can't help but think that we are on this side of the cross. Because all of these promises that they were given to go to a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that they would uh, experience the goodness of the Lord, you know where all of that culminated? Where all of it came to? the thing that we're about to celebrate in a few weeks, when there was a little baby that was born. Jesus, who always existed in perfect relationship with the Father, came down and wrapped himself in human flesh as a baby so that you and I could be led to the promised land in eternity. That's what That's what this promise has led us to, to look at the person of Jesus and see how the faithfulness of the Lord. The Israelites didn't have that to look back at as a little Omer, a little Ebenezer. But we do. History even says it happened. So we're sitting here, it's like, yeah, well, we don't even know. You know, is this true or not true? History says this happened. There was a man that was named Jesus. His, His mom said that she was a virgin and she, you know, he raised up. And he did these things and these miracles. That's what history says. It's not just the Bible. And they didn't like it, so they murder him on a cross, and then his body disappears. And then hundreds and hundreds of people saw him after they had buried him in a tomb for three days, after they had pierced his side and blood and water flowed. Like, so the question is, is do you believe that he is God or not? Because if you do, then you see his faithfulness you see that he has given us the one thing that we need. Because when we talk about God providing for us, what do we ultimately need? We need forgiveness from our sins. That's what we need. I'm a sinner. I am helpless and hopeless. I was even there this morning just reading over this this passage, just thinking, God, I so often resemble the bad person in the story. I so often resemble the complainer, the person that I'm not supposed to be. But God, you are faithful because you have given me Jesus. That's the good news that we are about to celebrate for Christmas. I mean, we're about to light the Advent candle. If you want to come up and do that. So this Advent candle, what does this mean? It is a candle this week of hope. This is the first week of Advent. There's four weeks leading up to Christmas. And this is a season of preparation. A season for us to prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus. And so when we look at this, when we understand that we can grumble and that we don't know the plan and that we're going to be tested and we're going to fail those tests, we have to go back to those three truths that we saw in the beginning. That God knows the plan. That God will always fulfill his plan. And that he includes us in the process. That is a good 
thing. That is good news. And he includes us in spite of us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Jesus made us alive by grace. The Bible says that he has brought us out of darkness into light. That's what the candle represents. A candle, the room isn't dark right now, but if we were in a pitch black room and we lit that candle, what would it bring? Light. What we see is that when God comes into our hearts and into our lives, he transforms us from the inside out. He gives us light that we can then go into the darkness and bring that light to every man, woman, and child that we are in contact with throughout the world. Here's what John 6.30 says. I want to read this, and this is where we're going to end. The band can start coming back on up. If you have it, you can flip there. John 6, verse 30. I think this is important because there's a correlation here that we see Jesus. And I think sometimes what I do is I talk about how we can see Jesus in the Old Testament, but I don't actually sometimes go to the New Testament and show you where, where this actually comes to fruition. John 6, verse 30. So they said to him, they're talking to Jesus, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers, they ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, who are they referring to? He gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're actually talking about Moses. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. See, the people there, they put their faith in a person. Now, this is Jesus speaking. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sound good. So what do they say to him? Give us this bread. We want this life. We want this light. Jesus said to them, <clears throat> I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. There is an invitation for every single person in this room today. An invitation to know that there is a God who loves you, and he wants a relationship with you. And it doesn't matter your financial status or what social club you belong to or which way you vote or what you do for a living. If you have a job or don't have a job, it doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. God has created you in his image. And he has come to give you life and to restore a broken relationship with you. Now, if you're a believer, if you say, yeah, I believe that, I believe that, I believe that, that's something we need to be reminded about every single day. That's where the faithfulness of the Lord and for some of you who have walked with Jesus for 30 years, 40 years, need to be reminded of every single morning. There is a God who loves you because trials are coming. And when those trials come, you have to remember that you have a God that is present with you. He is not distant. He is present. He is all-knowing. He knew it was coming. He is all-powerful. He will get you through. And for some, you may experience sickness, brokenness, hurt, addiction, and even death. But the promise is that this world is not our home. 
all the pain, all the tears, all the hurt that we are experiencing in this life will one day be gone. And that we get to experience eternity with God. We get to worship him and celebrate him for all of eternity. If you don't long for that, then my prayer for you is that the spirit would begin to stir that inside of you. Because what we do is we try to build that kingdom here on earth and it will always crumble and it will always fail. We cannot build eternity on this side of life. We have to look towards forever and recognize that's why we celebrate Christmas. Because we have a God who sent his son to be born a baby, be laid in a manger, to grow up, to die on a cross for you and I to have eternal life with him. That's the good news. And if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the invitation for you is to believe. The Bible says, repent and believe. So what do you do? What's repent look like? It means you turn away from you trying to be your own God and figure it out and do it all yourself, and you turn around, and you look towards the cross. You look towards Jesus and you say, he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Amen? We're going to take communion at this time. This is a representation of what God has done for us on the cross. When he was with his disciples the night before he died, he took bread and he broke it. So this is my body poured out for you, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What did he just say in John 6? I am the bread of life. So when we go and we take this bread and we dip it in the cup, we are remembering that he is our life. He is the bread of life. If we are sitting here today and it's like, I want that, I want that bread, then you go and you celebrate and you take communion, remembering what he has done. It's a physical act. The bread, the juice, it doesn't save you. What saves you is Jesus. What we're doing is we're going and remembering what he has done. We take the cup. The cup is his blood that he's poured out for us, that covers our sins, that atones for us, the word is. So we're going to do that. The band's going to start playing. What I would encourage you to do is just sit. Sit with the Lord. Begin to enjoy what he has done for you and his faithfulness. I want you to think about this question. How is God inviting you to change how you respond to the trials and the difficulties when they arise in your life? How is God inviting you to change the way you respond to the trials and difficulties in your life? So as you sit there, I want you to meditate on that, and then I want you to remember the goodness of the Lord. And then you can go when you feel comfortable and take and eat of the goodness of the Lord. If you're here this morning, you say, I just don't believe it. Don't believe it. Well, then I, I would want to warn you to say, don't go and take the bread and, and eat the cup because everybody else is doing it. The Bible actually says that you're inviting judgment upon your soul. I would just encourage you to come talk to us. This is a place to ask questions. You can come and you can say, hey, I don't understand this. I don't get this. Can you help me understand this? We would love for you to do that. I'm going to be up here, um, and if you want to come talk to me, I'd love for you to come talk to me. I want you to know that this place is safe for you to come and to journey with us as we come to know the Lord more and more together. Amen. So when you're comfortable, when you're ready, you can partake. Can I pray for us? Jesus. I pray that we would be grateful as we get up and receive the kingdom that cannot be shaken and that our worship would be acceptable to you, that we would sit before you in reverence and in awe. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truths that we see here in Exodus 16 where we can look 
at these stories and, and remember the things that they did that we shouldn't replicate, but we can also see your faithfulness played out over and over and over again. God, if there's anybody here today that doesn't know you, God, I pray that you would stir in their hearts affection for you. If there's somebody that is, is fighting against you because they don't like how their life has turned out or where they are right now, God, or they've been hurt or they've somebody in their lives, whether it was a, uh, someone in the church or someone outside the church has hurt them, God, I pray that you would begin to comfort their hearts and their minds and their souls so that they may know you. Only you can break those chains, God. God, you are our provider, and I pray as we go into this season that we will remember that you are faithful even when we are faithful. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.